you say the words black horror, people will name Get Out or Lovecraft Country. Movers and shakers like Jordan Peele are quick to rise to the lips of people talking about black horror. There's a long and prosperous history behind him many people don't know. Learn about the rise of black horror alongside a peek behind the curtain of Nightlight's production with Tanya Ransom, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello, and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. Last week, we heard Nightlight's adaptation of Tanana Reeve-Dew's Last Stop on Route 9, a chilling tale about a woman who takes a wrong turn in the South after a family funeral and ends up lost with her cousin and facing down the ugly history of the area. Tanya Ransom is the creator and executive producer for Nightlight, as well as a horror writer. She's the author of several Twitter-based semi-interactive horror stories and has a book releasing in December, Risen, a story about the undead and losing control of your body to the supernatural. We'll talk about her views on horror and how she likes her twist endings, as well as what goes into those social media horror adventures and creating her full cast finale for season one. Tanya is highly accomplished, knowledgeable, and incredibly busy during the scary season, so we are all truly blessed to have her on the show. Remember to stay tuned for the credits so you can learn how to support Black Horror Fiction and Tanya's work. Blankets and mugs at the table. Him and him and him and how does English work? <laughs> Blankets and mugs of tea at the ready audience, while Tanya and I take your hand to lead you into the dark. Hi, Tanya. Thank you so much for coming on to Radio Drama Revival. We're really, really excited to have you on and to showcase Nightlight. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So um, let's just get right into it, right? Let's set the scene for our audience about where Nightlight comes from, right? Where and when does Nightlight's inception start? Who helped inspire or influence you and what gave you that final push? Um, okay, so I listened to old-time radio uh, internet stations way back before the iPod was even a thing. So, like, iTunes had this thing where you could listen to radio stations, and I kind of stumbled upon old-time radio because at the time I was working as a programmer, and I realized that I couldn't listen to music because I kept zoning out <laughs> when I was supposed to be working. Um, <laughs> so, um, I like, I, I get really into music. So I had to find something else, and I knew that I could watch TV and work, so um, I stumbled on these old-time radio stations and I started listening to old time radio. And, you know, I thought to myself like, wow, this is really cool. It would be really cool if we could like, you know, revive this and um, have old time radio stations again. Um, but I was a programmer at the time, you know, didn't have any background in media or anything like that. Um, podcasts weren't a thing yet. So I knew that I was gonna have to work with a radio station to make this happen or figure out how to start an internet radio station. And, you know, I just kind of like, was well, no, I, I don't have time for that. That's a lot, you know, and kind of just put it on the back burner. Um, and then a couple of years later, podcasts became a thing. And I thought, oh, well, this is cool. Now, you know, like anybody can upload a show and anybody can listen to it. And that's super cool. Like, you know, I could totally do this. Um, but I also knew that I needed to learn how to do sound editing and then I needed money to pay the actors um, for the show. Like I'm a writer, so I could you know, I could write the episodes, but that was kind of the extent of what I knew I was capable 
of doing. So, you know, again, put it on the back burner because I knew it was going to cost time and money and I didn't feel like I had time or money. Um, and then finally, a few years later, I was like, you know what? I really, I really want to do this. I need to do this. I'm tired of having it be on the back burner and thinking about doing it, but not doing anything about it. And at the time, Fireside Fiction uh, did this survey where they asked writers, um, you know, how how many stories they'd had published that year, what their ethnicities were, what their sexuality was, like a whole bunch of questions like that, just to kind of give like the state of the industry thing for short speculative fiction. And um, when the report came out, they said something like two point something percent of um, fiction was published by black writers. Now, in America, at least 13 percent of the population is black. And, you know, black people don't have this propensity to be writers or not to be writers compared to other ethnicities. So, you know, I thought, OK, well, <clears throat> you know, that there's that number should be a whole lot higher. And so I started talking to my writing group, which was predominantly black writers and, you know, we were talking about this fireside fiction report and, you know, the question got asked, well, you know, what, what rejections are you getting when you get a personalized rejection? What are they saying? And the vast majority of them, um, popped up and it wasn't anything with the stories. It was the story is too black or the story is not black enough. And sometimes the same story got both of those bits of feedback, you know, so it's like, okay, well, if, if it's too black and not black enough, well, you know, what am I supposed to do here? Um, and so I wanted to create a place where black writers could submit their work and know that it wouldn't be judged on, you know, whether it was black enough or you know, anything like that, that it would just be the story, that their blackness wouldn't necessarily come into play in that situation. And so that's kind of how Nightlight was born. Well, thank you to Fireside Fiction for that final push there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned old time radio as one of your your big influences and as mm -hmm. you might suspect we are big fans yes. of radio drama here. <laughs> um, so in in previous interviews uh, you've said that The Whistler is one of your favorites. So tell us what you love about The Whistler. Um, and if you can pick your favorite child from old-time radio, share which stories have stayed with you. Okay. Um, one of the things that I really love about The Whistler is the theme song. Like, the whistling at the beginning is, like, super creepy, <laughs> and it sets the mood. <laughs> and honestly, like, that show just does a really good job of setting the mood entirely. Like, I think the sound design is really great on The Whistler. And, you know, they have a lot of twist endings to their stories, which I really enjoy. Um, I think probably my favorite old-time radio episode of all time is Sorry, Wrong Number, which I actually wrote a story that I named after this because it's kind of like a modern take on it. And it stars Agnes Moorhead, who played the mother-in-law on Bewitched. And um, she's listening in on this party line. So Way back in the day, people had phone lines that they shared with other people. So you picked up a line and sometimes someone else, you know, your neighbor, whoever was talking on the phone and you, know, you just kind of hang up and like, wait your turn. Um, but she picks up the phone line and she overhears these two men plotting a murder. Um, and there's a twist ending there that I'm not going to give away because it's such it's just a great, um, great episode of old time radio. It's probably my favorite of all time. That episode is phenomenal. It's a very good episode. So, so good. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite episode is um, The Thing on the Forble Board. Oh, I don't know if I know that one. Oh, it's brilliant. Well, there's a there's an episode on RDR where we actually, like, go into the archives and we, like, play The Thing on the Forble Board. And then David talks to Gabriel from Wolf 359 about it. Oh. It's 
Very creepy. It's very, very creepy. I'm going to have to give that a listen then. Definitely should. And if anyone in the audience hasn't heard it yet, you need to go listen to it. It's extremely creepy. (laughs) Um. (laughs) And it's spooky season. It is. It is. We love, we love spooky season. Yeah. It's my favorite. Yeah. September rolls around and like (laughs) our our producer Will is just like, Halloween is here. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's exactly how I am too. It's it's September. (laughs) September means spooky season has begun. You know, like, you know, if people can start putting up their Christmas trees before Thanksgiving, then we can start celebrating Halloween in September. Absolutely. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) So let's, let's talk briefly about twist endings, which you mentioned earlier. Um, there are different types of, of twist endings, right? You can go deeply ironic, grim, happy even, right? So what are you looking for in a twist ending? What's your favorite style? I really like the grim twist endings. Um, you know, I you know, I get why a lot of people want happily ever after endings in their stories, why they want to write them, why they want to read them. Um, for me, though, that doesn't speak to me in the same way that a more tragic ending does. So I think, you know, that that grim ending where, you know, everything looks like it's going to be okay, but then it's not um, Mm -hmm. really speaks to me. And, you know, I think a lot of people find that to be like, oh, well, that's just so hopeless. You know, you can't win against the monsters or, you know, whatever. And that that's not what I get out of those endings. What I get out of those endings is that, you know, when when bad things happen in life, we aren't alone. And just because that's the end of the story doesn't mean that's the end of the story, right? So, you know, you can imagine what might happen after that. You know, yes, there's a grim ending. Yes, your main character got killed by the monster. The monster, you know, continues to exist while your protagonist no longer exists. But you can interpret that as, well, you know, what happens to the monster afterwards? You know, is the monster redeemed? You know, there there, there are a lot of questions that you can kind of ask with a grim ending, and it can help you sort through some of the harder things in life, I think. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Some of my favorite stories have some very tragic endings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you've mentioned that one of the the aspects, you mentioned in like previous interviews, that one of the aspects of horror stories that you look for in your submissions is uh, the adept handling of, of tension and suspense. Right, which is a truly difficult art to master in the short story. So what do you look for stylistically in a story to determine whether they've succeeded as well as emotionally in your own reactions? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's that's kind of a tough thing to put into words for me. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it really like it comes it all comes down to pacing for me. Like, do I feel compelled to read the next sentence and then the one after that and the one after that? And, you know, I think, you know, every sentence certainly doesn't have to be something that, you know, makes you crave reading the next sentence. But I think that good writing that has a lot of tension and suspense and it raises a lot of questions and then withholds the answers to those questions until you're about to burst. And then it'll give you an answer. But then that answer raises even more questions. And so at that point, you know, you're kind of you're kind of hooked in by that original question. But then now you have all these other questions that have popped up that you have to you have to know the answer to them. You have to listen or read to the very end so that you know what the answers to all of these questions are. So what are some horror short stories that you think are a masterclass in sustaining tension? Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a really tough question. That's fair. Um, I think the yellow wallpaper does a really good job 
of that, um, as does the lottery. I would say that those would be the ones that I would say are a masterclass. Um, anything by Stephen Graham Jones and, um, oh gosh, um, I can't remember exactly the name of the collection, but it's something like After the People Lights Have Gone Off. Every story in there is is amazing. I, I would recommend that one as well. I have the only good Indians oh. on my wait list. It's it's coming. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm very excited to, to dig into more of Stephen Graham Josen's work. And speaking of the yellow wallpaper, as soon as you said the yellow wallpaper, my brain was just like, oh, yeah, the yellow wallpaper, that thing that we, like, made into a monologue when we were doing, like, performances in high school. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we didn't do that at my school. It was very conservative. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that'll, that'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> Sadly, because the yellow wallpaper is just so good. So good. So good. And I didn't even read it like not even in college. Like it didn't come up for me until like I was reading some people talking about, you know, great horror short stories. And that was one of them. And I was like, oh, I haven't read that one. And I went to read it. And I was like, oh, my God, like, yeah, cannot believe <laughs> that no one. <laughs> I mean, because I went to school a lot. Like, I mean, I loved being a student. You know, I was in college for forever. And I was like, nobody told me about the story. Like, I feel let down here. <laughs> yeah. All of you. Where were you? Come right, on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I mean, to be fair, my high school didn't even really cover Edgar Allan Poe. Like we did the raven oh my god and that was it um which was you know pathetic but i mean honestly like my school that i went to made national news because they banned so many books like they banned to kill a mockingbird and um a bunch of other a bunch of other books and they replaced what we needed to read for ap english with the first five books of the bible um so <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, I listened to your interview on um, Max Fun's Reading Glasses, where yeah. you talk about this, um, and you talk about banned books with them. And I th the number was, what, 32 is what you said? Um, I, You know, I can't remember. That sounds about right, though. Yeah. It, like, as soon as that number came up, I just sort of, like, stared off into the distance, just like, what? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you can look it up online, and you can see, like, the full list of books that they, um, that they banned. And then, you know, they walked it back after... I don't know. I think it was probably a year later that they were like, oh, well, you know, like we're making national news for banning books. Maybe <laughs> maybe we don't want this attention. Uh-huh. Maybe not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of attention, we are currently living in this, you know, massive rise in the funding and buy-in, let's say, right, of black horror, where black protagonists are the heroic leads instead of getting killed off first by the monster. So Get Out, Bad Hair, the Candyman remake, if it ever, <laughs> right. if it ever comes out. Uh. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of glad they're postponing that, though, because I want to see it in a theater. Like, I want I, I want to see it. Like, I would totally watch it at home. Don't get me wrong. But I'm also kind of glad that they're postponing it, and hopefully I can watch it in a theater. Big same. Big same. <laughs> it's definitely on my list of, like, things I want to see in a theater. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But not willing to die for. So. <laughs> right. Not yes. now. Not in a theater now. Maybe ask me after the election. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so in your work online as, as a media reviewer, right, you, you talk a lot about black horror and you talk about these kinds of like cultural milestones. And so what are your feelings about how audiences and executives are approaching these works um, I mean, I'm glad that it's happening. You know, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm super glad 
that it's happening. Um, you know, I think with Get Out, they saw that black-led horror could make money, which, like, I don't know why that didn't occur to them before, but, you know, <laughs> like, uh, <yeah>. whatever. Um, <laughs> so you know, I'm, I'm really thankful for it. Like, I'm glad for it. I'm glad that Get Out proved that black-led horror could make money um, because that's, I mean, really, that's, that's what talks in Hollywood is money. I think also that the current racial climate in America, um, at least I can't speak to other countries, obviously, but um, I think that the racial climate here also contributes to that a lot um, because race is kind of a hot topic now. And I feel I feel in a lot of ways that black writers, directors, et cetera, are being exploited Um because I don't think that, I mean, I'm not saying that everybody in Hollywood is like this. And, you know, maybe I'm super cynical. I don't know. But I feel like, you know, a lot of Hollywood is not doing this because they think that black stories deserve to be told. They're doing it because it's going to help make them money. And, you know, the moment that race is not the um, predominant conversation in this country, I think that that's going to fade, even though that opportunity should still be there. Absolutely. Don't worry. Everybody here at Radio Drama Revival is equally as cynical. <laughs> I fully agree with your analysis there. I don't know. I would hope that, like, eventually we, like, move out of this, I don't know, down with capitalism, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's let's do a little bit of history, actually. Um, so black horror stories are not, as these executives would have you believe, the invention of the 21st century. Right. Right. Um, Charles Chestnut was writing horror in the 1890s and the early 1900s. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, wrote The Comet in 1920. So what distinguishes some of this historical work thematically from the work we're seeing now or the ones that you're seeing in your submissions? Well, you know, I think it's really interesting because you can even see how, you know, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that the things that were getting published by Black people were predominantly around race. Um, they were um, horror stories that somehow had slavery or um, Reconstruction involved. You know, some some sort of racism was involved in these horror stories. Um, and, you know, I don't think that that's because that's the only thing that Black writers were writing about. I think that that's what... Um, people were publishing. That's what people wanted to read. So, you know, in a lot of ways, we're kind of still stuck in this same place where, you know, publishing is basically looking for like torture porn. Mm -hmm. And that that's not the only thing black writers are capable of writing. I think, you know, as time has gone on, you know, again, I think black writers have always written things that weren't, um, you know, based in slavery or, racial injustice, you know, things like that. Like, Black people have always written stories that don't have anything to do with either of those things. But, you know, what what's getting eyeballs are the things that um, are the torture porn. And I think that that's still the case um, in a lot of ways, you know, in Hollywood and publishing, I think in publishing probably more than Hollywood, that, you know, the horror stories in particular involving slavery or racial injustice are just going to get snapped up quicker than quote unquote regular stories written by black writers. And I think that's tragic. Um, I think it kind of lends to this idea that, 
when Black people write horror, that it's always about racial injustice. And that's not the case. You know, like, yes, that might be the most horrific thing in our lives, but we write outside of that as well, you know, both as a means of escape and as a means of dealing with the horrors that we face in our daily lives. One of the things that you that you have worked on and that has been, I think, from from previous interviews that I've seen you talk about it, uh, like great comfort or fun or like very useful are these multimedia horror stories, right? Which includes this popular form where people follow someone's horror story on a Twitter thread that is portrayed to some extent as real. Mm -hmm. So what's your process of bringing one of those to life and what what does it do for you, right? Oh, um, Twitter is my favorite place to tell stories, honestly. Um, and, and I mean, it's pretty cool because sometimes when I come up with a Twitter story, like I have it kind of in my head, you know, I haven't written it, but I know what's going to happen. It's going to start here and it's going to end here. And I just kind of, you know, take a few pictures to go with it and then post it. And then sometimes I start it and I have no idea how it's going to end. And so like I'm staging things <laughs> As I'm doing the story on Twitter and taking pictures. <laughs> um, but, you know, now, like, I mean, I, I did that a lot early on where it was like, I don't have any idea where this is going. I'm just going like, to take pictures as I go. Um, but now that I kind of have more followers, I feel like I can't be as lax about it. Like, <laughs> I have to make sure that, you know, like, my stories make sense and, like, I can't be winging it. You know, I need to be a professional about this kind of thing. <laughs> um <laughs> Which, you know, which isn't to say, like, I can't be a professional, you know, like creating a story, you know, flying by the seat of my pants. But um, it makes me a little more nervous now that I know that more people are watching. Um, But generally, like, um, so what I did with the most popular story that I wrote on Twitter um, called I'll Never Take a Nap Again was um, I actually woke up from a nap um, with blood on my face and you know, I, I got up and I'd gone to the bathroom and, you know, was washing my hands and looked in the mirror and saw the blood on my face and was like, you know, where did that come from? And then I thought, oh, my God, this would make an amazing story. Like, I should take a picture of this. And then I was like, wait a minute, this doesn't look like enough blood. I need to make blood. <laughs> and so I went to the kitchen and I was like, what do I have that I can make blood with? And I got some chocolate syrup and some red food coloring because it needed to look like dry blood. So it needed to be like kind of brown. And, it, you know, I didn't want it to look like fresh blood. Um, so I used chocolate syrup and red food coloring and, like, smeared that all over my face and then took a picture. And then I was like, oh, well, you know, what else can I do with this story? And then I thought, oh, like, what if somebody, like, took pictures of me on my phone while I was sleeping and, you know, home alone? And so I went and got my son and I was like, how would you like to help mommy tell a story? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, what? And I was like, I need you to take pictures of me. And of course, like at this at this point, I've got chocolate syrup blood all over my face. <laughs> and he like and he looks at me and he's like, "What's on your face?" I'm like, "Oh, it's just chocolate syrup. It's fine." <laughs> and so, and so I finally, you know, like after I answer all his questions, because you know, inquisitive kid, you know, he's like, "What's that on your face? Like, why am I taking these pictures? Like, what is this for?" And you know, answer all of his questions. <clears throat> you know, he takes some pictures for me. And then, like, I'm kind of telling him about the story that I'm trying to put together. He's like, well, what is it about? You know, at the time he was, I don't know, probably like six or seven. And so I'm like, well, you know, how much should I tell him? I mean, I mean, he is looking at me with fake blood on my face. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the cat's out of the bag, I guess. 
<laughs> so, you know, I, I kind of tell him, like, you know, what the story is about, that, you know, I wake up from a nap and that I've got blood all over my face and um, that somebody was taking pictures of me while I was sleeping on my phone, but I don't remember any of it. Um, and I didn't really know how it was going to end. But like at this point, like I've already, you know, started taking pictures of stuff and I'm like, I'm telling this story, but I didn't know where it was going to go. So I started, you know, typing out the story on Twitter and about halfway through it, you know, I, again, you know, like I love endings where the monster wins kind of thing. So I knew that that's something that I wanted to do, um, with that story. So, um, I whipped up some more chocolate syrup blood and started like smearing it all over the house, (laughs) you know, taking pictures of that, um, and then, you know, ended the story. I don't want to give it away, you know, what the ending was. But, you know, that that was a lot of people thought that story was real because I didn't preface it with, hey, this is a story that I'm telling on Twitter. I was just like, hey, I'm going to tell you guys a story. And so people like were, you know, frantically like DMing me saying, are you OK? Like, did you call the police? <laughs> you know, And I'm like, I'm OK. It's just a story. Like, don't give it away like on the main timeline. But, you know, I'm OK. Don't worry about it. Um. So, yeah, a lot of people, like, were really worried about me. So since then, I've made sure to be like, hey, it's story time. So, you know, nobody, like, sends the police to my house or something. Yeah, that would be bad. Let's not do that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because the people that were deeming, most of them, you know, knew me in real life one way or another. Or, you know, like, at least knew my address because we would, you know, exchange letters. So, like, theoretically, any of these people could have been like, oh, you know, she's in trouble. I'm you know, calling the police or whatever. Um, so I, now I make sure that everybody knows that it's story time before I tell a story. Um, but after I finished the that Twitter story, there was still a lot of chocolate syrup blood left. And so my son smeared it all over his face. And then he pretended to be dead. And we took pictures of that. <laughs> um, and then he pretended to be a zombie. And I think that that's... Um, you know, because I did like credits at the end, you know, to credit him for taking the pictures, which he thought was the coolest thing. You know, he's like, I'm famous. And I'm like, not quite, but, you know, <laughs> Mom, mommy's not famous. Therefore, you're not either. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but uh, there's a little video clip of him like pretending to be a zombie with like all this blood all over his face. And then we sat and we ate the chocolate syrup out of the bowl. Oh, my God. And it was a great bonding experience for us. <laughs> That's that's so cute. <laughs> it, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Like, I think a lot of people would be like, oh, my God, I can't believe you had your child, like, pretend he was dead. Yeah. But it was his idea. He wanted to pretend like he was dead and have me take pictures of it. So that, was, <laughs> that part wasn't me. The part that was me was, hey, let's make some fake blood and play with it. <laughs> yep. That sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's very good. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty awesome. He loves helping me with the stories. It's always nice to have your kids helping you write horror. Yeah. <laughs> kids. Yeah. I I used to babysit and uh back in ye old pre-covid days. Um <laughs> and uh some of the stories that these kids would tell me, man. Just yeah. like where did they get it from? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I just was lucky in like babysitting some pretty creepy kids, but you know, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> no, I think I think most most kids can be very creepy given the opportunity to be creepy. Yep. Yep. And then as soon as they like if they don't grow out of it, you know, you've got a horror writer on your hands. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. No, absolutely not. So you mentioned to me that your the favorite story that you've produced so far is the newest one, mm-hmm. which is Tanana Ravedu's uh, last stop on Route Nine. Yes. Which is also the one that we featured here on the show. So 
if I recall from a previous interview you had, first of all, uh, Dew was a dream get for Nightlight, so congratulations. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and uh, Dew's whole set of work that I've read so far is absolutely incredible. I'm yeah. pretty sure that Ghost Summer is going to haunt me forever. Yeah, that is such a great <laughs> anthology. Oh my goodness, so great. Yep. So yeah. great. So good. Um, what is it about this story, Last Stop on Route 9, that you love? Oh, it feels like it could be a Twilight Zone episode. Um, and, you know, like a lot of the stories on Nightlight are like that. But um, I feel like Tanana Reeve has, uh, I don't know, that little extra something that, you know, only some writers have. You know, you can be you can be a great writer and not have that something. Um, but to be an exceptional writer, I think that you need that something. And I think Tanana Reeve has that something. Um, she just has a knack for... Um, pacing, you know, tension and suspense and um, kind of having that little twist at the end. Like, it's not like a full-blown twist, but, you know, it's also something that you don't necessarily see coming. And, like, my favorite show of all time is The Twilight Zone. So anything that feels like it could be a Twilight Zone episode is always um, a favorite in my book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so listening to this episode, right, and the way that you designed it, it feels like the horrors, right? The dogs, the truck, the silence even are leaping out at intervals um, out of the fog at us. So how how did you approach sound designing last stop on Route 9? Oh, um, so, you know, this episode, because, you know, Tanana Reeve was a dream get for Nightlight, I was like, I'm going to edit this episode. <laughs> like, I don't, yeah. <laughs> don't want to have to, like, convey to someone else, you know, because I knew that I was going to be super picky. And I was like, nobody deserves to be in that position where they're going to have to go back and make changes <laughs> five different times because I'm like, oh, that's not quite right. You know, like, I wanted it. I wanted it to be the way that I wanted it. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that, like, I did the best job out of anybody that, you know, like, certainly other people could have done a better job. But, you know, like I said, I just I did not want to subject anyone to my madness. So um, <laughs> so I decided to do the sound design for that episode. And, you know, for me, it was, you know, thinking back to like the whistler and suspense and the sounds that they had and how they did the sound design. That's that's honestly you know, like the technical stuff is stuff that I've picked up watching YouTube videos and things like that. But like the principles of how to create atmosphere and create terror and, you know, create all of these emotions with sound have all come from listening to old time radio shows. You know, that's always been my goal um, with Nightlight is to make it sound as close to an old time radio show as possible. And, you know, I knew that I wanted to focus on the sounds that would bring the the listener in, but also kind of create a little bit of fear for them. You know, like the dogs barking, you know, is a, is a big, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like motif in the story. Like, you know, they're, they're constantly there, but you know, you can't, you can't have dogs barking in the background the entire time where people kind of tune it out. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, with this story that I only had the dogs barking, um, when it was a little more urgent or ominous, um, so that readers wouldn't tune that out. Um, I wanted to make sure that the music that was in the background was really, really good. So um, Brandon Boone, who does a lot of music for um, the No Sleep podcast, you know, love his work. Um, he had a sale a long time ago, like before he even started a podcast, I think, or right after. Oh, wow. Um on um, like a collection of his music and I bought it 
And so, I, you know, I remembered while I was doing it that I had those and I was like, oh my God, like, the, you know, one of these would be perfect. So, you know, I picked some music that would be perfect, make sure that I lined up like the crescendos with when, you know, something's truly suspenseful was happening in the story. And that's just kind of how it all came together. Yeah. How has your approach to sound designing and scoring narration changed, if if it has, right, from when you started Nightlight? Oh, like when I started Nightlight, you know, I definitely had sound effects um, in the stories. Um, and I, I wouldn't say that I was like super light with sound effects, but, you know, now I think that I'm including more sound effects than I did early on. And, you know, part of that is just because like I've gotten better at it. So I have more time. Whereas, you know, when I first started, it took forever for me to edit an episode. So, you know, it's like one of those things like, okay, like I don't need all of these 15 sounds, like 10 will do, um, you know, just because I was running out of time to do stuff. Um, and I think that, you know, when I first started, it was very much like, let me find some atmospheric music and just drop it behind here and we'll be good to go. Whereas now, like, I try to line up um, crescendos in the music with, you know, suspenseful moments and things like that. You know, it's it's more intentional in how I do things. And, you know, the sound effects also are... Um, they're, I wouldn't necessarily say they're more intentional. That's not quite the right word. I'm more picky about the sound effects that I put in. If they aren't exactly what I'm looking for, then I will just not have a sound effect there. I won't force it. Um, and I think early on I did that a lot. I was like, well, you know, there's someone knocking on the door here, so I'm going to put a door knock here. And it wasn't quite the way that I envisioned it sounding, but I would put it in there anyway just because like, I felt like there had to be a door knock there. And you know, nine times out of 10, you don't actually need someone knocking on the door. Um, you know, like there, there are definitely moments in a story that need a sound effect, but more often than not, if you can't find the right sound, you can leave it out and it's not going to do any harm to the story. Absolutely. I love talking about this and, and like sound designing, you know, narrated work. Um, I think that it, it's something that doesn't get talked about enough because sound designing and scoring narrated work is very different from yeah. from from dramatized work, um, which you know because you did an audio drama. The yeah. season finale for your first season was See You at the Crossroads, yes. uh, which is a full cast audio drama. What was that experience like for you? Oh, gosh, it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I mean, I had a great sound um, sound editor at the time, Jen Zink. I mean, just amazing, amazing. Um, and she's the one that put it together. So she did like a lot of the heavy lifting there. And it was still, you know, it was still a lot. It was, um, you know, it was one of those things where like it was kind of a last minute thing that I decided to do. Um, like a lot of things that I do <laughs> end up being last minute things. Um, but it was like, you know, I should do a Halloween special. And I had originally written that script, um, as a spec script for the Twilight Zone and, you know, never heard back from Monkey Paw, um, Jordan Peele's production company about it. So I was like, you know, I really want to see this produced. It's not going to get produced on TV. I'm just going to take it and I'm going to run with it because I want to do a Halloween special. And I already have this thing written that I could do, um, and, you know, so it was kind of a last minute thing. And I, you know, reached out to a bunch of actors and I was like, sorry for the late notice, but, you know, can you have this done like this week <laughs> um, to give Jen, you know, plenty of time to, you know, edit everything in and all of that. But, you know, like I know it was a lot of work for her, you know, taking all those different parts and, you know, piecing it all together because, you know, it's like you get 
10 different sound files from your different actors and it has all of their lines. So you have to, you know, take pieces from one file and pieces from another file and, you know, create a story out of it. So I know um, that it was a lot of work for her. I mean, it was a lot of work for me. <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and, and I did expect it to be a lot of work. You know, like I knew how much work it was to produce a narrated story. And I knew that, you know, a full cast audio drama was going to be way more work. But, you know, I definitely learned a lot in that process, for sure. Um, namely, not don't wait to the last minute, which I'm totally doing this year. Um, so I learned my lesson, but I'm not actually doing anything about it just yet. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next year. It's 2020. I feel like I feel like we can forgive you for that. You know, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Um, Do you know how many emails I have written that are just "Hello, sorry for the late reply." Right. But everything <laughs> has been on fire. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But Halloween's not going anywhere. It's not getting moved to another day. So it's like I got I got to get it together. I've got to get the script to actors and you know get them recording their parts so that you know I have plenty of time to put this. Um, episode together because this year it's probably going to be me that puts it together and yeah that's it, it's going to be it's going to be a lot you know especially because October is such a busy month you know I'm doing a lot of promo for the podcast you know it's 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 going to be a nightmare honestly <laughs> so hopefully people um, will enjoy it I think that they will and we all are rooting for you thank you <laughs> <laughs> So in some descriptions of Nightlight, right, you've stated that narration in Nightlight is performance. Mm -hmm. So um, tell me more about your thoughts on that and about also your own work as a narrator on Nightlight. Yeah, so I think that something that a lot of people don't think about um, when they're listening or reading narrated stories um, for audio is that you don't have the benefit of, you know, like Jane said or John said at the end of every sentence, you know, because that, that it just doesn't sound good. Even when you're reading it, it doesn't quite sound right. But when someone's listening to it, they often don't know who's speaking if, you know, there's like a back and a forth going on, um, you know, especially like after like two or three lines, they might lose track of who's speaking to whom and who said what and um, all of that, because you can't see like when a new paragraph starts and things like that. So, you know, when you're narrating a story, it's really important that you have different voices for the characters that you're doing. And, you know, it doesn't have to be like, you know, cartoon voices or anything. It doesn't have to be like something like drastically <laughs> different um, for each character. But there should be just a little something different about how they speak, you know, the depth of their voice, the pitch of it, you know, whatever it is that you feel is appropriate for that character that that listeners need to be able to track who's speaking when um, in a narrated story. I think, too, um, the other thing that that's important when you're narrating a story is, you know, pacing is important, um, you know, just as important as the pacing in the writing. You know, you have to have, you know, pauses in the right place when, you know, something suspenseful might be happening you know, just that little bit of drawn out silence right before something happens can make a huge difference in the amount of tension that your listener feels. And then, you know, if someone's in a situation where they're scared, you have to, you know, speak a little more quickly because when people are afraid, they, they talk really fast and they might stumble over their words. And, you know, there's just more urgency in the way that they're speaking. 
you know, or, you know, if they're being very careful, they're going to speak a lot more slowly and enunciate, you know, their words a little bit more. So, you know, there, there are ways to make the listener feel things with your voice. And it's not just about, well, someone's reading a bedtime story to you kind of thing. Absolutely. Thank you for that really, like, beautiful description of, like, what it is that goes into, like, narrating. Um, I, I, don't, I fully agree with you that people don't realize how much goes into narration. Yeah. So I've only got a couple more questions left, but I'd love to ask you, what do you envision for the future of Nightlight? Oh, man, that is, um, that's a tough question. There are so many things that I would like to see Nightlight become. Um, and I don't know if it'll be Nightlight that becomes this, but um, I would really love for um, a, a network or streaming service to pick up Nightlight and create like a TV series, you know, kind of like the Twilight Zone, if I may be so bold. <laughs> um, you know, an anthology series based on the episodes on Nightlight um, or, you know, things that I curate um, where, you know, it's a separate TV series, you know, but the same name, you know, just different stories. I think that that would be amazing for that to happen. Um, I would love to have a full cast audio drama. I don't think Nightlight will ever take that shape you know, for lots of reasons, you know, one of which is I kind of want to write <laughs> the, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the full cast audio drama. And, you know, like and what I want to do with Nightlight is give black writers a platform um, and give readers and listeners an opportunity to find new black writers. And if I'm the only one writing, I can't do that with Nightlight anymore. So that's that's not something that I'm willing to do is start writing everything for Nightlight. So, you know, eventually I would like to do a full cast audio drama, like, you know, with full seasons, not just, you know, one special a year. But um, I think that's going to, I think that's going to have to be a separate show. I look forward to when you finally write it. Well, see, the thing is, is it's written. The first five episodes are written. <gasps> <laughs> I just have no time. You wrote it. Yeah, I just have no time. <laughs> you know, back back to this, you know, whole thing where I don't have enough time and I don't have enough money. And, you know, one day I'll get fed up and I'll just do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll know when you get fed up. I will, I'll see it online. Yeah. So, I mean, Okay, I'm done. It's happening. <laughs> I've tried to shop it to, um, you know, podcast development studios, but nobody seems to be, like, super interested in it, which is unfortunate. I mean, and the thing is, is like, I know it's good because it made semifinals at Austin Film Festival. So. Oh, wow. It's not crap. <laughs> yeah, no. That's good. Yeah, I was pretty excited about that. Well, I will keep my fingers crossed for you. Thank you. Okay, so your your bio in a couple of places says that you make great salsa. I do. So, any tips for our audience? <laughs> um. Okay, so it depends on what kind of salsa you like. I like the kind that you normally get at, like, Tex-Mex restaurants you know I'm I'm in Austin so you know Tex-Mex is kind of our thing here so my bar is pretty high um but for me the thing that makes great salsa is that the only part that's chunky is the onions so you blend your tomatoes and your jalapenos and all of that you know to where it's kind of smooth but then you leave your onions like you just dice them really small and you leave your onions diced. And so you end up with like this perfect mix of texture and smoothness. And um, and use canned tomatoes, like fresh tomatoes. For some reason, it just doesn't taste as good. Canned tomatoes actually taste better to me to use for salsa. Mm. 
Yum, yum, yum. <laughs> Maybe I'll make salsa today. You should. well thank you so much tanya for having this conversation and talking with me it was wonderful to talk to you thank you so much for having me it was a blast support black fiction by joining nightlight's patreon at patreon.com slash nightlight pod they're about 250 dollars away from paying pro rates to their writers which would be an incredible feat and a much needed one And Risen is available for pre-order. The link is in the episode description. Radio Drama Revival runs on your patronage and blazing midnight oil. If you'd like to help keep us afloat and featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. Other than Patreon, you can also support Radio Drama Revival by buying merch at our shop at radiodramarevival.com slash shop. That hoodie would help keep away some of the chill on an autumn night. And now we bring you our moment of will. Hi. I'm recording this on, for me, the last day of Samhain. Now we spoke about Samhain a little bit last episode, but I want that ethos to carry through to this episode too. I mean, hey, the two episodes are connected and I'm always a sucker for a closed circle. Whenever you listen to this, regardless of the season or the date or anything else, I want you to just take a second. Take a deep breath in. Take a slow breath out. And I want you to think of at least one thing you've done in the last year, and I don't really, to be honest, I don't really care how you calculate that year, whether it's the last calendar year or the last 365 days, you know, it's up to you. It's up to you. Uh, But I want you to think of something that you're really proud of doing. And I want you to just hold that thought for a second. Just kind of let yourself steep in the fact that you're proud of it. You got it? Hey, I'm proud of you too. That means it's time for the credits. This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Kalapuya people, the Klitskani Indian tribe, the Kaulitz Indian tribe, and the Atfalati tribe. Colonizers named this place Beaverton, Oregon. If you are seeking ways in which to donate to Native communities, the Mi'kmaq community of Nova Scotia are defending their fishing treaty rights and have been suffering escalating violence at the hands of non-Indigenous peoples after the Sipiganugati First Nation launched a livelihood fishery. You can donate to the Sipiganugati First Nation via an e-transfer to monica at sipiganugati.ca or via PayPal. This and more ways to support the Mi'kmaq are linked in the episode description. If you aren't sure what treaty rights are and the significance of treaties to Native and Indigenous peoples, you can start your research with articles linked in the episode description, which include a history article by writer and former tribal judge Ruth Hopkins, an article debunking myths about treaties by Taylor McLean from the Center of Indigenous Studies at the University of Toronto, and an opinion piece from The Globe and Mail by Sheldon Krasowski. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band Kylo Kaz. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. 
Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird. Our submissions editor is Rashika Rao. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhouse and David Reinstrom. Our mascot is Ticker Tape, the goat. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. This has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers, welcome. <laughs>